0: This episode is sponsored by CrowdHealth, a new way to pay for big healthcare expenses. I've been using CrowdHealth personally for the past year and have been very happy with it. It gives me access to virtual care and a network of practitioners that I can use on a self-pay basis. It also covers my downside risk if I have any major health issues. If you've left the default path and want a health solution to go with it, check out CrowdHealth. Go to joincrowdhealth.com, and if you enter the code Boundless, you can get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code Boundless. Mandatory disclaimer, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome to the Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I am incredibly excited to be talking with Joe Hudson. He is the founder of Art of Accomplishment, which is a collection of several courses. Um, My wife has taken a couple of them, and we've talked about a lot of the ideas he's explored also in his podcast, which is... One of my favorite podcasts to listen to right now. He also has an amazing uh, life story and definitely want to explore that a little bit more today. He's lived all over the world. He's worked as a banker, consultant, philanthropist, teacher, meditated for several years, and uh, has a lot to offer people. I think has a really unique perspective on transformation and so much more. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Joe.
1: Hi good to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. So I always start out with uh, what are the stories and scripts that you grew up with? And I'm excited to uh, hear your response to this question because I think a lot of what you do in your work, and maybe this is a way to introduce it as well, is helping people sort of figure out what those scripts and stories they grew up with and whether they're still serving them and how to how to integrate them or not integrate them and things like that. So oh. excited to hear uh, what it was like to
1: grow up as Joe Hudson. <laughs> wow, stories I grew <laughs> up with. <laughs> there's, a, there's a shit ton of them. Uh, but I would say the the dominant story like from zero to seven was that I was loved. And then from seven to like, I would say, maybe not all, like maybe the two stories I grew up with when I was young was I was loved and there was something wrong with me. And then from like seven or eight until whatever, probably in my twenties, it continued that I, there was something wrong with me. That was the message that I grew up with. And it's, I I say that with the knowledge that almost everybody is raised with that story. So there's different brands of that story. Um, but but definitely you know the the things that the the way it was taught was like my emotions weren't okay some of the things i was thinking wasn't okay i needed to be controlled i was hyperactive i was naughty whatever all those stories that i was given and um rather than the story you know of you're lovable and you can be attuned to and all that stuff so definitely that was the dominant story and it was I would say in my case, a hardcore version of it, not the most hardcore version of it by any stretch, but I had like an alcoholic father who yelled at me at the dinner table every night for like, I don't know, good hour and a half every night to the point like in our upper middle class neighborhood, like they would call the cops on my dad for yelling at me, you know, like it was, it was that kind of a thing.
0: What was that like? I mean, what was, how did you deal with that? I mean, children don't really know how to integrate all this. And I'm sure you had many different coping strategies.
1: Yeah, I didn't have much of a choice as to my coping strategies. Uh, Like, I remember this moment at the dinner table where I was like, fine, dad, you're right. And he's like, see, I told you you were weak, right? That I was needed to fight. The way I see it now is that my mom and dad's marriage was in trouble and they needed a problem that they could, coalesce over I was the problem there's a like I was like the family crucible of that and then also like the other thing that was happening was my mom was fighting through me right so my mom was scared of my dad but she would use me as the surrogate for her fight and so that's just how we did it you know so there wasn't a choice but to fight and so because of that I learned when I'm scared I fight when I'm sad I fight when I'm like Anything that, like, any emotion that I feel that is uncomfortable, that means it's time to fight. Yeah. And yeah, how did you take that into like early adulthood? <laughs> I got kicked out of college <laughs> fighting. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, uh, I, I, okay. So in college, for instance, my first year in college, it changed, but in my first year of college, I, you know, they write you up. I was at a UC school and and the the system was that they would write you up if you did something wrong. And there's people who had like nine or 10 write-ups. I had four, but I was just a dick, you know, like I would, I would come into the hall and there would be like all these posters. People would hang over the windows and I'd just walk in and I'd be like, yeah, and I'd take them down. It was like, you know, whatever, like Christian fellowship this or, you know jamboree this and i would just like take them down and they'd be like you can't do that i'm like someone just put them up like this is my this is where i live if someone can put them up i can put them down like i was that guy and like it was all justified in my head um so i think i got like four write-ups which was but but and then one of them was you know i had this crazy roommate and anyway so by the end of it it was just like I went to the ombudsman of the campus just to give you like a flavor of how much I fought. He said, look, you want to get out of this. All you need to do is just say, you're sorry. I was like, yeah, that's not happening. So I actually like had the longest trial in the history of the student body. And I had like all these professors come to speak for, and they just massacred me. They are just like, you're out. So, uh, yeah, I just, I just needed to fight. I had, I was like, the world is my dad and it's an authority that I can't, can't be trusted. So I will, I will fight that authority. Yeah. And with the
0: lens of that survival instinct, it it sort of makes sense. It's like, of course you're going to do this. I, I heard you talking about this, uh, with your podcast partner, uh, Brett and, uh, you're like yeah very clearly i should have just said i'm sorry and yeah. functionally sta- stayed in college but i mean
1: <laughs> you were trying to survive though in that moment just like you were as a kid yeah i think my identity like the sense of self yeah. which had not been fully formed needed to survive and i have no regrets about it in the fact that like i ended up graduating valedictorian of my next school and you know, it was like a great, the whole thing was an amazing learning. It was like a, a incredible education. Um, and it was like, you know, started to plant the seeds of my self-discovery. So, you know, that kind that level of pain of getting kicked out of college was, was an amazing motivator to, to look at myself. So
0: you also, you also have talked about, uh, Living in many different countries. I, th- I think this was growing up. You lived in Iran, uh, Switzerland, yep. Saudi Arabia. Yep. Uh, how did that influence you? I think you were talking about it in the lens of always being able to take many different perspectives. Uh, but I'd be interested in what that's like because you're writing in the context of all these things and Connecticut. And I thought right. that was interesting because I only grew up for the first 22 years in Connecticut. And oh, that wow. is a very, um, so it's like I had the Connecticut perspective and you had like the rest of the world. Right. What part of Connecticut were you? What what uh East Eastern Connecticut, right near
1: Yukon. Uh okay. So right, yeah, my mom really in the you. middle of my, nowhere. My mom taught in Yukon for a little bit. Um oh, wow. Yeah, and, and Fairfield. Yeah. What was it like? It it was awesome. I loved it. It was really good for me on many levels mostly I was just socially awkward as hell. And so I got like a restart. I got like a reset button every, every, you know, less than a year typically. And I would have another set of people that I could learn how to interact with and learn how to connect with, which I was not good at, obviously, given that I was emotionally abused for a large part of my life. And So that, that part of it was really good. The other part that was really good was seeing that there was lots of ways of living and that underneath that people were generally very good people. Um, so that was another thing that was really beneficial. And then also, you know, you grow up with certain contexts that you'd never question because why would you, you've never seen anybody act differently, right? Like, yeah I should wear my like if, if you were about the same age, I should wear my collar up and it should be pastels, right or I should go to I should go to school that has flooring instead of like dirt on the floor or like there's just these things that you know to be true only because that's the only thing you know and I got to know a whole bunch of different truths and realities, and so that was incredibly helpful and it, it opened up my mind to allow like in later stages to allow all sorts of kinds of wisdom in and to learn to learn basically how to translate um so even today for instance if i can speak to like an a, an energy worker and i can translate that into like the emotional work or the somatic work or the intellectual work that that they're often saying the exact same thing But the language is such that somebody will reject it just because, you know, like I feel my vibrations and and it's like, you know, whatever the hell you're talking about, shut up. That's not rational, you know, says the other person. Whereas I can say, I can like dig into that and say, what, what do you mean by vibrations? Like, what is that speaking to? And then translate it to another part of the, you know, somebody who's more head oriented or emotionally oriented. And so it, it's an, and all of my life is that, like I can translate really, really well because I just t- got to see a lot of truths.
0: So talk to me a little bit more about your personal transformation. Uh, so you you get kicked out of this school, uh, you end yeah. up at this second school, become valedictorian, but it sounds yeah, like yeah. that leaving the first school sort of opened up a new perspective of maybe, okay, Joe, I should get get my shit together now.
1: No, I got kicked out of school with a three point nine seven grade point average or something like that. Like I, I like when I got kicked out of school. I was also doing really well um, academically because I just loved learning. Yeah. So no, I didn't really. I'm not sure if I ever. I'm <laughs> not sure if I ever got my shit together. Uh, I stopped rebelling. You know, it, as I moved through college, I still rebelled. Yeah. You know, I remember taking a poetry class. And it was like the only B, I, they gave me a B plus and I like totally fought it. I was like, like no way I did all the work. The other people didn't, and you just don't like my poetry. Like that That, that, that doesn't work. And like, I like brought it, like, as a matter of fact, I remember the story was um, I, I needed money to, because my dad's alcoholism had like destroyed the family wealth, whatever wealth we had. And then, um, and so I had to pay my last year of college and I didn't have any money. And it was kind of last minute notification. And I went to the Dean of Students and I said, hey, I've got a 4.0, can I get a scholarship because you're too late? And so I sat with a cardboard sign in front of of, uh, the president of the university that said, we'll get a 4.0 for an education. And like 30 minutes later, I had the scholarship that I needed to get through, you know? And so so at the end of the, like as I'm giving my valedictorian speech, the Dean of Students introduces me and he reads from my essay. Like this is, so I'm like nervous getting up in front of these folks. And he's like, let me read from Joe's essay, the entrance essay. And it said, um, uh, uh, the the paradox of of a rebel is that they either get stomped out by authority or they become an authority and start to stomp people out. And I'd say valedictorian is an authority. Joe, take it. Like he just kind of (laughs) like, I was in that duel all the way until I think the end of my first job, my first real job, not like I did some fishing boat stuff. And, but like when I did stock lending, I was still kind of rebelling against the man. And I think at some point what happened, the 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 first crack of that was the pain, you know, like the, there was just like a, a constant pain from the narcissism of that. Right. Like the, the, the pain of, turning all of my emotions from sadness and fear and wanting to leave whatever that was, all those emotions and just turning them straight into fight. Like there's a huge amount of pain, muscle constriction, you know, self-violence, negative self-talk that's required to do that. And that pain just started building. And so I started looking for ways out of the pain and and partially I was a little bit lucky in the fact that because I was a rebel, I wasn't going to be like, you know, how do I do that? I was going to be like, that's the establishment. I'll look for non-establishment. And and that's where I started to like go into all the religions of the world and in all into the alternative psychologies and started doing all those experiments. And it started very academically, like reading parables and doing religious studies. And then it turned into, you know, a meditation retreat that I did, which gave me the felt sense of, you know, gave me a, a, a moment of, of oneness, like eight seconds of oneness that, that I just became addicted to. I was like, whatever the fuck that is, I'm, I'm going after that. And when and so, was that? Was that after graduating? Yeah, that happened, uh, like, so my wife, when I met Tara... She was like, if we're going to get married, I asked her to marry me and she had some conditions. And one of them was a 10-day meditation retreat. One of them was uh, traveling, uh, backpacking through Southeast Asia for four or six months. And uh, and so it, during that 10-day silent meditation retreat, which was the first time I meditated, I had that moment day, it was like a Vipassana and it was day four, beginning of day four. And it just like everything evaporated. And I got to a taste of who I am. And I was just like, whatever that is, I'm addicted, which is its own crazy, like <laughs> not, not most productive way to go about doing it. Very long, hard slog, but it w- was what it was. And that, that's, that's how it started really in earnest. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you had a lot of this
0: uh, pain and challenge from childhood that you sort of drove into a, achievement. And yep. it was, it, but you also still had like this uh, creative sense of like holding a sign in front of uh, the president looking yeah. for a scholarship. Um, yeah, Did Definitely. you have trouble like untangling, like what is the side I need to keep of this versus what is really driving this in a productive
1: way? I feel like it, The I, I don't think I... I don't think I let go of any of it mm. meaning like the creativity is there. The drive is still there. I think it's just integrated that the, yeah. the, the way I would, I would say it is that that stuff is integrated into, you know, an, an undefended open heart. It's not, it's, you know, it, it's, it's integrated into um, a mind that doesn't fight with itself, but you know, we'll, the ambition for lack of a better word is still is still there. Um, it doesn't have a reason anymore. Meaning like 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 for a while when I was building the business or something, I had a reason of I'm doing this to help people. And then I had a reason I'm doing this to change society. And then like I want to scale it. And now I'm just like, yeah, I just enjoy the hell out of what I do. I'm just doing what I enjoy. Um So there's, there's, there's not a need for a reason to justify myself for anything like that. I'm not looking to please anybody, but humans like doing shit. I like doing shit, you know, and, and I, and humans don't like being told what to do. And, uh, you know, that's not entirely true. Humans sometimes very much like direction, very much like to, you know, but nobody wants to be forced or bullied into something like nobody likes that. And, um, And so it's just, you know, I just, it's just an integration of it. It's not like this part of me is bad and I have to go. When I had the, this part of me is bad and that has to go, that was like years of fighting. That was, that was fucking brutal. That's just another extension, right? That's, that's a part of me being my dad telling another part of me being my little kid that it's fucked up. So, so I, like, it was the cessation of that fight. It was the cessation of trying to, improve myself. And it was turning more towards, you know, just who am I? What am I? What's my authentic expression? And that's where the real, real healing began.
0: Yeah, I have a similar experience. I sort of, I confused myself for a while because I paired ambition with bad outcomes because I saw the people around me in the corporate world and they didn't inspire me. And I was starting to become a shittier version of myself. And so I quit and sort of tried to stop working and stop making money because like ambition bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it took me a few years to actually trust myself to like lean into actually doing things and just notice, Oh, well I actually like what I'm doing. Like I'm okay. Yeah, and I sort of like reaccepted the word ambition about two years ago, but it took me five years um, yeah. because I was sort of in this war against myself, and I, I sort of think this is a necessary stage of when you leave a certain path, you sort of go ag- you like go against it almost in a way to protect yourself of not going back, but at some point you need to integrate that and move on. And now it's like, oh, I do want to be special. I do want to be loved. I do need to be praised, but I don't need to be praised by assholes in suits. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's actually pretty cool to be recognized by other writers who like love creative work. Um, Right. And so trying to integrate that in healthy way has been a big part of my journey. Um, and actually something you wrote around this, um, I think really ties in with this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Don't waste effort on trying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all the challenges I've had are when I'm like trying to be someone else. Yeah. And it's so much easier to be ambitious when I'm not trying, which I think is confusing when people hear that, but um I'd love to hear h- how you've uh thought about that.
1: Yeah, I so to speak on a couple of the things and then to answer your question, the I do think that it's a very natural stage to like rebel against the thing and then like push back. For me, that wasn't ambition, but it was money. My ambition just transitioned to mm. like I am going to have this ex- awakening experience, which was its own folly, but but it you know like but for me it was money. Money's bad. Money's good. Like that whole transition back and forth into integration. So I, I I really see that the the other thing that you said there was like this need for approval. My experience is that just on that part, I think this is important for my journey, and which was there was the fuck your approval though. I was like getting straight A's to get my dad's approval, but fuck your approval, like that whole thing. At some point it became, how do I allow that approval in and let, and feel it all the way. And as I did that, as I fully allowed appreciation and compliments in all the way, then the need for them died off, but the enjoyment for them, like just, i'm like i love i love i love like compliments and and gratitude and it feels so good to give and receive it um but the need for it seems to have vanished uh i I, which relates to the question of trying um like trying means that there's a goal in mind that you that you need to get to like you can't try without that like oh, there's something that I have an idea of what's right and I need to try to occur to do that. Trying also, I I heard this recently that like, uh, um, linguistically, semantically, it it comes from a word that means basically to not accomplish. And so if you think about trying and you put your hands together and you try to move your fingers apart, like, and you move them apart, then you haven't tried. That, that's doing. Trying is like attempting to, but not doing it. Like moving your fingers apart. That's the sensation of trying. And that's just a, that's another version of a war with yourself right? as compared to, oh, I'm here doing this activity and let's see where it takes me. Right. So instead of trying to get the compliment, it's like, oh, I'm going to enjoy whatever is happening right now. Instead of like trying to get to the end, like whether it's computer programming or in meditation, especially in meditation, like trying to get somewhere is 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 self-made it's hell, it sucks. Enjoying being there that's like that's lovely. i like I could meditate like that for a lifetime so so to me it's that's that's the main thing about the trying. And at the same time, what the mind then wants to do with it immediately is like, okay, now I'm gonna try not to try. I'm gonna tell myself I shouldn't try. I'm gonna manage myself into not trying, which is all the more of the same crap. And so the only really thing you can do is just not fight with yourself. And so that, that's, that's what I mean. And it, and it just takes, as far as like a business goes, or as far as a, a ambition goes, it just takes a shit ton of energy. Like to try requires a lot of energy. Just even just try to pull your hands apart, but you know, you're know you not pulling them apart. You're just trying. That takes a shit ton of energy. That's not efficient.
0: Yeah, and not going to war with yourself. I think I'm sort of lucky in that I don't have this. Um, like I've sort of like always been fine with myself i think i i had abundant love like i was almost like you are very loved from a childhood and i feel incredibly blessed and people are always asking me how do you do that and like my my wife is asking me how how do you do that i'm not i don't know um which is why i find a lot of what you talk about in your podcast fascinating because you have a different experience and i know you've worked with a lot of people on this so for people that don't think they're good enough like yeah. what is this what is this starting point for becoming more comfortable with that and not sitting there and thinking I know I should stop saying that I'm not good enough or all these things right, right, because right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I do hear a lot of people in that and I'm sort of dumbfounded because I don't know what to tell them yeah uh,
1: it's a it's a tough one and um, take take Joe's courses <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, uh, it, there's lots of me- there's lots of methods my, m- my courses are definitely part of that but there's lots and lots of methods I, I would say there's two things the first one is there's an assumption that there's an end that is i would say not true there's always a way that we can love ourselves better there's always a way that we can love each other better like there's no end to our evolution you know like we just keep on evolving our and, as far as I can tell, like my capacity to love hasn't found a limit, um, myself or others. So, or the other way to say it, there, there's like the there there isn't like an, like an everlasting all encompassing peace where there is no war with yourself because life without tension is death. Like a cell without tension dies. So there's always a certain amount of tension required. Just to be alive and so that's like how do you hold that tension more and more gently becomes the question um there's definitely these big moments where like what people would call awakenings and stuff or enlightenment and and it changes a whole shit ton of stuff but it doesn't mean that the path is ever finished um so that's the first piece to it and and that's an important piece to grok because it allows you to be more gentle with yourself typically for people who are in war with themselves you're looking for in the mind you're looking to deconstruct your thought process so that you can find the gentleness your your thought process like the thought process is abusive it's bullshit it's not productive but you're you can't see it so the job is to like constantly deconstruct that thought process so that you can see it and that doesn't mean someone telling you oh that that doesn't make sense because if someone says that to you, then you go, yeah, see, I'm a fuck up. <laughs> like, see, I didn't even see that. So y- you have to do that work yourself. You have to deconstruct like, oh, I'm an asshole. I just called myself an asshole. Is that true? Or, oh, I just called myself an asshole. Is Like, yeah, who isn't? Everybody's kind of an asshole sometimes, right? Like, so so what? what, like, why am I so hard on myself for being an asshole when, like, my wife was just an asshole and I'm trying to please her like, how did that happen? So like that deconstruction on the intellectual level is, is the key. The other intellectual thing that's really important is that there there's a conversation going on, but we usually only pay attention to one side of it. So typically the voice in the head, the negative voice in the head that repeats itself. And I think that, I think that research is, like, they think 60,000 times a day we have thoughts. So and most of them are repetitive and negative for many people, um, and some people don't notice them. And so, but that there's usually it's like it's talking and we're responding, but we're not noticing the response. You should do this. You should do what? Did you take this? Did you take pay attention? Stop smoking. Why aren't you working out more? Whatever that thing is doing, and our response is often like, okay. Mm. Uh, like it's an endurance. It's like we're the little kid being yelled at, not saying anything back. So a really cool trick intellectually is to respond. Like, and, and I would say don't don't take my response for it, but like literally experiment. Okay, today, every time it speaks to me, I'm gonna sing frozen to it. You know, or today, every time it says something, I'm gonna yell at it. Today, every time it says something, I'm going to say, I see that you're scared and it's okay. I'm with you. Like, I'm going to just run experiments in response to the voice in my head. Because usually we're just, because you can't really control that. You can't like say, okay, stop thinking and it stops. And if you're patterned and conditioned to think in a certain way, you can't particularly stop the automatic thought that arises. So, but what you do have choice in is how you respond to it. So, intellectually, that's, that's one way to start letting go of the war. And emotionally, which is I find in our society, typically the most productive and quickest way is to have emotional fluidity. It's to fall in love with and learn to express all of your emotions in a safe way, in a way that doesn't hurt anybody, in a way that's not trying to manipulate anybody. And learning how to love them, to feel them, and to express them is really really, really quick, really, really efficient. If if somebody is depressed, not high-level depression, but dysthymia, low-level depression, and they get angry every day, not at anybody, but they move and express their anger every day, for the first couple of days, their anger is going to be more and more and more, like, up front. But eventually, and not very long, a couple of months, that depression usually is gone. Not for everybody, but, like, that emotional fluidity is, is this thing that's most missing in most people in our society, at least in Western American society, also Europe. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the emotion, the nervous system level. What's happening in the nervous system is like, oh, it's constantly prepared for an attack. It's constantly tracking to see what it can do wrong or right to not get attacked. When the attack is about to come, it clenches. So learning how to receive pleasure and enjoyment is great for the nervous system. So if you want to stop being at war with yourself, those are that's the intellectual, the emotional, and the nervous system way to do it. Most schools will teach you one, and there's lots of versions. I'm giving you the stuff that I find really effective. There's a lot of other ways to do it. Um, meditation is great, and I highly recommend it as well. And an integrated approach is is very efficient. If you're really interested in it, doing all three instead of just working on one is very efficient. The
0: anger part, uh, and you've talked about this extensively, I I recommend people check out the um, series on this on your podcast, but moving anger and just, I've been talking a lot with my wife about this and realizing how rarely we have space in our culture to express anger anger especially like um east asian culture um with kids especially the way she right. grew up was like don't do any emotions in public
1: yeah um, and so and therefore a shit ton of guilt shame disappointment and passive <laughs> aggression that's that's the result of not getting the anger moving
0: yeah and, and definitely not um, the only society
1: that has that issue yeah it,
0: yeah, in the US, we have. I mean, for men, it's you're not really supposed to be angry or stri- share strong emotions. Or I had no idea how to experience those in a safe way. Yeah. Um, without just like the conflict, I could do conflict. It, it, we had some, we had some like healthy, playful conflict with the anger, but I never knew how to do anger on my own. And so, I loved this story um, and maybe you can tell it. I think you were making pancakes with your daughter and you had, yeah. had to move some anger. Um, yeah. I, I thought this example was so good about, like, oh, I've never thought about doing anger like this. That's right.
1: Yeah. It's inju- right. So that's so just to, I will tell that story and just to see what happens is when an emotion gets attached to shame, like, oh, it's shameful to be angry. One thing that happens is it, it 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 blocks the emotional movement but the other thing that happens is we start thinking of it in a binary term like for whatever reason most human beings think if i'm going to get angry it means at somebody it means damage it means pain for somebody else they don't think like oh i can just fucking go get angry and not hurt anybody right like th- just that just that that very simple logic is very, uh, hard to see because of the shame involved. And so I just want to point out that shame is part of the, is part of the system. Uh, yeah. So the story is, and this has happened a lot of times in my house, especially because I grew up with everything as a fight. Um, but you know, typical dad in the morning, my girls were like eight and, uh, five or something. And I'm, and I'm cooking pancakes, and and it's like that moment when the eggs are done and the pancakes need to be flipped, and the coffee's like whatever, like the whole thing's happening at the same time. And like my daughter was like, <laughs> like a, a, a homing pigeon. I, this is the moment to ask my dad the question, and and uh, so she said something, asked me something I can't remember that was was just a like I overwhelmed me, and and I just jump up and down. Oh, I'm so angry! I'm so angry! I'm so angry! I'm so angry! Breathe for a second. She looked at me and she's like, "That was some good anger, Dad." <laughs> and then we laughed. I flipped the pancakes. Whatever you know. So that that's like in in my world and in uh, my family and but also in like the general community that that has become the AOA community. That's like a just a very standard operating procedure, both for us and for kids and um and i'll say hand in hand parenting a book called listen if you have kids especially young ones unbelievable resource in this department just patty whiffler has done such a great job her book is listen and um it's just amazing yeah it's called hand in hand parenting hand in hand parenting is the is the okay is the organization the book is called listen and the founders named patty whiffler she's a dear dear friend yeah. i will
0: definitely be checking those out i i think it's it's been fascinating to i mean i have a nine month old and i am fully convinced that having a child is the greatest personal development uh, thing you'll ever oh, yeah. sign up for yeah. um uh, yeah. and i think it's great because me and my wife like we love learning about ourselves and challenging ourselves and talking about it and it has been delightful um and it's been great to hear about how you think about parenting and I don't want to ask you like what is your advice for parents um I was thinking an interesting way to ask this might be like what are the things you sort of rejected that a lot of people do or like the things you decided not to do with your kids
1: Yeah. I mean, to be clear and to give credit where credit is due, I, you know, I was starting to repeat the patterns of my parents. Um, my wife was, was like, yeah, we're not doing it that way. And so I resisted a little bit at the beginning. And I think here's something that I did that most people don't do, which was like, at some point, um, my first was like two years old. I was like, I resist. She has to fight. I finally give in, she's right. Let's just stop this whole cycle. So I was like, babe, whatever you decide to do with parenting, I'm gonna say yes to you for three months. If at the end of three months, and I'm gonna be fully committed to it. And at the end of three months, if it doesn't feel right to me, then we'll have the conversation. Um. So that was something where I really allowed her to be in charge of, of the kids. She was just better at it, especially at the young age. It's different as our teenagers. Um. Uh, we've, we've switched roles a little bit there. And then, so that's one thing. I, I'd say once that transition happened, um, things that I don't do that most folks do, I love their emotions, have loved their emotions, like happily sit and feel whatever temper tantrum they want to have. I don't let them destroy shit, but like, or hurt each other or did. Um, I We don't use punishment. We don't use shame. Um at least we try our hardest not to uh, try, but I would say it rarely happens, and we catch ourselves quickly if it has happened um, when it happens. Um, uh, we do not we, we're very aware that our number one job is to have them listen to themselves, not to have them listen to us, and so there's a perpetual movement to not manage them, but to help them identify what's happening inside them so we, the, the general idea is that what's inside them is inherently good if they can listen to it. And if we don't, if we don't separate them from it, um, and that if things are not going well, then the, the problem is they're out of connection. The problem isn't them. The problem is that they're out of connection. Our job is to help them learn how to get back into connection with themselves. And so, and it works. It works great. If you meet my girls, it's just on uh are one's eighteen now. They've done crazy, wonderful stuff. My just like, I don't know, two now I guess from now, I think it was like eight months ago. My daughter was crying and I was like starting to come in and, you know, talk to her about it. She looks at me, she's like, Dad, just let me have my feelings. I'm like, ah, oh, sorry, <laughs> babe. Like, <laughs> like, um, so just and you know, they're just a complete transparency both well accomplished for their ages and 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 loving and open-hearted and non-defensive and yeah
0: one thing you've said sure. which i thought was a pretty powerful way of putting it is that uh, teenagers don't rebel against boundaries they rebel against the removal of love and yeah. so um, it is pretty powerful combined with the fact that I think you're pointing out that a lot of parents get mad at their children for doing things they weren't allowed to do as children.
1: Yeah. So, right. So I would say, for instance, if you were told anger wasn't okay and you were ashamed at anger, when the kid gets angry, you're going to stop that behavior. If you're in a airplane and, and a kid is crying you can just like look up everybody who's annoyed they weren't allowed to cry as kids like that's just like that's just like it's just like so like it's a it's a great algorithm so so and every time you tell a kid not to cry you're basically saying you're fucked up you're wrong for crying you're wrong for having a temper tantrum you're wrong for wanting to get your needs met you're wrong for you know having a a big personality you're wrong for being too excited you're wrong for and a kid between zero and seven years old they don't have an intellect online like an adult so they're not they're not saying there's no rationality there there's just like this is who i am this is the emotional expression and the parent is saying no don't be that don't be you and that's really what causes a tremendous amount of rebellion later in life and and it also it's the the same thing that happens when teenagers are teenagers you know it's like let me manage you let me tell you that like yeah I don't I cannot tell you I have how many parents breaks my heart every time it's like yeah my kid's kind of an asshole I'm like wow man that happens a lot like parents who were like really pretty damn good parents and then their kids become teenagers the teenagers rebel And, and they're like, ah, and my teenagers, like when they rebel, I'm like, that's a good rebellion. That's like, this is great. Like your job, push off the, the edge of the pool. And, and it's like, and there's like a really clear, uh, rule in our house. Like, it's like, if you are contributing to the house, if you're being a good person, if you're, if you're treating people with love and respect and you're taking care, you're taking responsibility for yourself, you get freedom there's nothing to rebel against. If you don't do those things, you don't get freedom. And it's just never been a thing. Like the freedom that our kids want, they're always ready for it in that moment. And so I, I've literally, I'm scared to do this in case my kids ever hear this. I've literally given them stuff to rebel against that like, that's like manufactured. I'll literally say things like, Cause they need to rebel and I'll say things like, oh my gosh, high-waisted jeans. I can't believe anybody would wear high-waisted jeans. And then they'll be like, oh. <laughs> like, but yeah, so that, that, like there's some rebellion that's necessary. They need to individuate and, but if they feel loved, that love and connection is so much more important than anything else to a kid. And, and every adult that I know, they might hate their parents, but they still want somewhere that love and connection from their parents. And so, like, take that away from them. And, yeah, of course they're going to say, fuck you. Why would they not? Like, you're not doing your fucking job as a parent. Fuck you. I can't trust you. Yeah. like It, it just makes every, every bit of sense from their perspective.
0: Yeah. And from, I know you deal with a lot of people that are still dealing with issues with their parents. Parents still trying to control them and things. Yeah, yeah. and. How do you, how do you open that kind of conversation? Um, this sort—I of, guess you can just say, "I want, I want connection," um, and I'm I'm not getting
1: it. Oh, with the parents, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's different. On um, different. That's different on different stages. Sometimes the first step has to be the boundary. Like if yeah. a parents abusive, the first step has got to be the boundary, not so much for them, but for you, for you to realize that you can say no. You can't it's really really hard to love something that dominates you. And that's why it's really hard for people to love the voice in their head is because they haven't figured out that the there's a way to not be dominated by the voice in the head. And so like it's really hard to do that. So sometimes boundary is the first thing that's required to get there. Uh, grief sometimes is the first thing, but eventually yeah, it's it's being able to be undefended and open-hearted no matter where your parents are at. That's, that's where your freedom lies. But you can't just jump there. You, there's work to be done between the two.
0: And with your kids, it sounds like you did a really good job, you and uh, Tara, around building an intentional community around your family and your kids. How did you find those people? How did you um, think about that? Because I can, I can only imagine letting your child have a tantrum you're going
1: to get criticized by other people. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great story. I was in a Whole Foods with uh, one of my daughters and she was not having a good day. So she had full temper tantrum in the Whole Foods. And I'm like containing her, you know, I can't let you hurt yourself. I'm right here. You know, yeah, you can't have the cookies or whatever she wanted that was creating the temper tantrum. And uh there's like I live in a somewhat hippie kind of area or new age kind of area, and this like little old lady, purple hair, everything, like comes up and she goes, Are you okay? Like as if I'm hurting, you know, my daughter. <laughs> and my daughter, and she's like three at this point, maybe. She just like looks at her, she goes, I'm just having my emotions. <laughs> and just like goes tears back into it. So there were some moments that were awkward like that, like where there is like the full temper tantrum um in front of people. I, I was committed. Once I saw how well it worked, I was committed. I didn't well, like what other people think was not, was not important. Um, and, uh, community. Yeah. We, we, we had a interesting ride with community. We had some friends who were raising their kids in a similar way. And so, but we didn't all live together. We just had each other's backs and Tara and I are in a couples gathering that like we have been meeting with that set of couples since pretty much Esme, was, our oldest was born, so 18 years. And we meet three to four times a year and we discuss what it is to be parents and share vulnerably the craft that's going on in our lives and the good stuff that's going on. And that's been critical, so good. Uh, marriages go through a lot. And so that's been really nice. And then we did move to a town where um that was very strong like i was lucky enough that when i when we had as i could live anywhere i wanted to live probably a lot like you and and so i went around and i just looked for teenagers that were that were well adjusted and we went all over the united states looking and we found where we live now and we found out that a lot of that had to do with a kind of a schooling thing called Waldorf, which. I thought was horrific, but I couldn't argue with the results. I was like, this is lunacy. And again, I was like, oh, I mean the results are what the results are. So our kids did the first five years or so in Maldorf, which I think was great. And so we had that community as well. But we, we did try a, a couple of times to like live in a like go into a place where we were living inside of community with other people who were like minded. And that never, that never particularly panned out. I studied it a lot. I looked at like what would be healthy and just never, never panned out for us.
0: Yeah, the, uh, starting to think about these things, I love the lens of where are the well-adjusted teenagers. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it, we're talking to people around like schools. Should we move abroad? Should we do something in the U.S.? And we're sort of like struggling to find... Um, the places like where we fit and sort of want to um, adopt some of these similar parenting strategies. And yeah, it, it's uh, it's a hard thing. I, I don't yeah. really have any great wisdom, but I, I love the, the frame of thinking about where the well-adjusted teenagers are, especially, I mean, I look at these charts of the US and the depression in young women and I have a nine-month-old daughter and I'm like, okay, That is the goal to avoid. Like, I don't yeah. want to head in that direction.
1: Avoiding is, is a hard way to make good decisions. Uh, it, I, I, I find like the difference of like, how do I avoid the depression is so much different than how do I go where there's like well adjusted. Just, I just, that's something I yeah. notice in decision making generally is like avoidance doesn't create the same decision there's good of decisions as like a vision and what you want to create
0: i like to invert it so i say how could i guarantee that my daughter will be depressed oh, that's a cool way <laughs> to do it yeah, 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 yeah and then i say okay what are those things i might be leaning into now and how do i adjust for those that's sort of how i um think about my path is like how could I guarantee that I become a miserable, cynical, older man? Um, and then if I'm like doing any of the behaviors that are leading to that, it's like, okay, that, that that's probably where I should focus, uh, that's cool. lean into. Yeah. Um, so that's one yeah. way I like to think about it. Yeah, you talked a bit uh, at the beginning about translating. How do you yeah. translate this stuff to like uh, investor, super rationalist type person yeah, Th- yeah, they're yeah. still reaching out to you so there's some self-selection but um how do you think oh, no, about your no, choice no, no
1: no no there's definitely the places i go where there's no self-select like if i'm working in an ai company with the executive oh, team yeah. the ceo brought me in but the rest of the team is like what the oh, fuck is going on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um i don't know I'm, if you I'm,
0: read uh david course. white but he writes about uh, like working He writes about working in these
1: organizations and I imagine it's a similar thing. I I haven't read his writing on that. I've read his poetry, which I love. Um, You know, a good example is uh, I walked into a company, you know, multi-billion dollar market cap, sitting with the C-suite. The CEO introduces me, speaks for about seven minutes and then stops and hands it over to me and I look around and I say, okay, I noticed nobody was listening to the CEO. i want to go around the table and see what makes each of you not listen to the CEO. And then I got around the table, looked at the CEO. I said, what made it okay for you to speak for seven minutes and not be listened to? So people can think that it's all woo woo, but like not after that, they can't, (laughs) you know what I mean? So so, so there's a a way in which the, what I do and everything is so practical it's so like uh, tactical that it's really hard to, like when someone does that, sees that and sees what happens from that, then they, they give me a lot of, they give me a wide berth. But there's definitely, you have to be fearless in calling out the dysfunction. You, and, and you have to have a lot of facts about how neurology works and psychology and, and, and be able to translate that into, practices that have been around for 2000 years that are effective as if, and I would say this in a course too, which as if, if a practice has lasted 2000 years, pretty confidence effective, like, like that's, that's better proof than neurology, honestly. But so anyway, so that's, that's the, that's the way to do it. And, and I don't question it myself, right? Like there's, I'm not in a fight. To be seen as rational or to be rejected by rationalists I, like the, none of that's in me so if there's nothing for me to defend i don't defend anything so there's nothing for them to fight it's like taking a sword and hacking at water you're just like you keep on doing it the ocean's not going to change you know so so that's also a big part of it is to energetically not you know n- not try to convince or or be defended about their skepticism, to actually invite it and enjoy it. I, I find that the skepticism that gets brought is the best and quickest way to get to their truth, their truth, not mine, their truths. It's like, they're telling you exactly, here's the thing that I am, am wrestling with. Why would, why would I not want people to be skeptical? Yeah, I,
0: I love that uh, story. What,
1: what, were, what was like the response, the CEO, do you remember? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it was conflict avoidance. He didn't say it, but that's what came out. What came out was that this CEO's conflict avoidance. So typically in a, in a company, if a CEO is conflict avoidant, it's viewed by the people around that CEO, like he is not trustworthy. Maybe a charlatan, maybe like drank the Kool-Aid, maybe, maybe a liar, but, but it's because a CEO who's conflict avoidant is smart enough to know what people want to hear and accurate in that. And at the same time is avoiding their truth. And so if like, if you're telling people what they want to hear and you're avoiding your truth, people can't trust you. So people just stop listening. And, and, and when we got to that, when we got to like, Oh, here's how we can have health. Here's, here's how this company can have healthy conflict and everybody, look forward to it because it can be productive the whole company changed it was amazing that's incredible what what's the role of money um,
0: in people's uh, it it seems like money is one of the most interesting vessels for thinking about uh, sort of personal transformation and values and principles one exercise I've done myself and with other people is like why do you earn money 10 reasons people can do like two and then once they get to like reason three
1: they're like uh i've never thought about this (laughs) oh wow I've, i've never done anything that that's a great one i've never done such a good one yeah i uh wow i'm just let me contemplate that for a second and what that would do inside of a consciousness oh i love that that's a great exercise what, I'm sorry, what was your question again? Your question was, what... what? Well, what?
0: one thing I, I've heard from you before, I, l- I love this idea of the happy money game. And oh, yeah, yeah, sort I of, it's your way of coming up with some sort of conditions that actually fits with somebody's relationship with money, whether they use money to buy things or use money to avoid things or money doesn't mean anything to them. Um, playing with that and charging different amounts. I, I did a lot of experiments early on my path with the gift economy and uh, a lot of that was my own, um, labeling money bad. So therefore gift, gift good. Um, and basically all that enabled me to do is deal with the fact that I had all these weird feelings about money. Because so, as soon as somebody paid me a really low amount for something I thought was worth more, I was just like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm not that generous of a person. I have all this money stuff I have to figure out. Um, so yeah, yeah, maybe just the question is, how do you play with money with your clients and people around figuring out what it's
1: um, what it's all about and what it's, what's behind it? Yeah, there's yeah, so many ways. So typically what I notice is money is one of the main the, the way people view money is one of the main ways in which they project their childhood onto the world. So they do this to wow. authority figures, they do this in marriages, they do this with in politics, they do this in with money. And so typically people view money in, in the same way that they had a relationship. So for me, a, an example would be always trying to get my dad's love, put me in a position of always trying to get money and, and never being able to get my dad's love made it so that I just couldn't really get the money, even though I was totally capable of getting the money. Uh, as it turns out, I, I, because my psychology was that way, every time it just like evaporated. Um, and because my dad was bad, money was bad. And so I had like that whole relationship. So I, I do this exercise sometimes with people where it's, where you like find these projections and show how it relates with your money and, or your marriage or whatnot. And so typically, uh, because it's so powerful that way, it's, uh, there's a lot of freedom because you, because that's where the projection lays and that's where, and you have to deal with it, no matter who you are, you have to deal with the money, like it it's like this really potent way to to really get into the deep psychology of a person. So that's part of how I do it. The other thing that's really interesting about money and just generally is that um so if you think if you if you're familiar with the banking system, you would know that the banking system is like a, it's like the best scheme ever. There's never enough money because the interest um can never be paid off with the amount of money that there is like, that's like, that's the game. And so there's always a shortage of money. And, and it's like, and then you can easily say, oh, the bankers have like the, like ha, devil bankers and they understand that they can blah, blah, blah. But as soon as that cryptocurrency thing happened and someone tried to create a coin where there wasn't that lack it's worthless. And yeah. so the reality is, is that it's, the bankers just found something that worked because we as humans feel like it's not worthy. It's not worth. It doesn't have value unless there's scarcity. That's that's like our psychology. And so we are a part of it the same way. And and that also ends up being something that just in society in general is like love and friendship is really not worth anything because unless you feel like there's a scarcity of it, right? And so there's this thing is like when you move, there's something that happens as you move into a feeling of an abundance of love where there's just like endless and it just regenerates itself. What I notice is people make that transition. Typically money resources become the same way, which is really absolutely fascinating. And so sometimes if somebody has like a big chunk with money, you can just work on the love part. And at some point that love turns to the money Instead of like, and when you actually love something, then there's the healing process happens really, really quickly.
0: This basically happened to me. Uh, The first, the first three years after quitting my job, like money was tight. I was in the scarcity mindset of conserving. And then as soon as I sort of released the tiller and said like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to do the work I don't want to do. I'm just going to go all in on the creative work. Yeah things just started showing up and it it wasn't even money at first it was people and you also talk about this i i i released um especially in the early days and that's literally when my wife showed up um and the answers showed up and deciding to write my book it just sort of emerged and it's really hard to convey to people because people will be like "Well, what's your plan right what's it's like i don't I don't know yet like we'll see when the answers (laughs) come, right yeah yeah. Um, but it's sort of this deeper trust and it really is this renewable resource and I feel so lucky Um, but yeah it's weird it's I I can't explain that I don't worry about money and I also don't know if I'm
1: going to make money next year (laughs) yeah right exactly that's yeah, I mean, it's money is such an interesting point in the fact that, like, right now, everywhere you look, literally, if you just move your gaze around, you can find at least twenty companies that are making money at anything you fucking look at. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just the wall. Just look at the wall. There's the paint. There's the drywall. There's the transportation of the paint in the drywall. There's the paint brush. There's the drywall screws. There's the like. It's just there's such an abundance of money. It's endless and so many ways to make it and you know like that perspective comes as you like learn to love yourself more learn to love others more because then the love for money just happens and the projections start to go away
0: how do you convince people to spend more money that they're scared to let go of
1: <laughs> i don't ever try to convince anybody to do anything so my whole thing is i I here's a set of experiments, and then what do you learn? What do you call to? Because nobody is more qualified to nobody is more qualified to know what their next step is than them. Like, and and, yeah. and I, I have a deep trust. Just like my daughters. I have a deep trust in their goodness and wisdom. I have a deep trust in everybody I works with, goodness and, and wisdom. Um. So, so I never try to convince anybody of anything. If I notice somebody is if I notice that somebody is conserving money, like, Oh, I, I like, they have a rigidity and a fear that that money is going to go away. And that's usually most typical in people who've inherited money. I mean, most of the people I'm working with in a direct one-on-one relationship have quite a bit of money. And usually those folks are like inherited people who've inherited uh, money. And and it usually comes from a, a deep fear that they don't know how to make it, that, they, they, that they're not actually powerful, um, empowered, virile, creative people. And typically it's second generation or third generation and they've been told, you know, had an incredibly critical parent. And so they believed in it and never had the flaming field to go out and do something that proves otherwise. Um, so it's really a work of empowerment Typically, with people like allowing them to feel empowered, um, and having that emotional experience, which typically comes after allowing yourself to have some negative experiences, be- because the the positive the positive emotional experiences are typically harder for people to allow than the negative ones, and they usually come after.
0: Yeah, this this resonates with my story. I struggled to spend money. I was self employed and theoretically going to try and make it on my own, but I was like not spending any yeah. money on what I was actually doing. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, eventually I just decided okay, I have to spend X dollars amount on the things I actually care about. If I want to like, record a video or something, I'm going to actually just buy the camera or pay yeah. for the subscription and things yeah. like that. And, yeah, it's uh, it's very hard. Um, and one of the other things I did was just try to make money in different ways. And I think over time that helped with the positive side of it. Like I right. tell people making $1,000 on your own feels like you made a million dollars. Like it's <laughs> a great one. I remember the first thousand I made on my own. It was like, this is worth more than the r- previous 10 years
1: of all my salaries. It, it was so cool. Yeah. What's even interesting about that is, you know, one of the things that I deal with typically is, is people who have like a boss, like in the courses, there's somebody who has a boss and they feel like the is has some sort of power over them. And, and when they have this moment of recognition that actually they are an Uh, they are a business and they have a problem that they only have one source of revenue, that is their boss, right? And that the boss isn't actually a boss, the boss is a client. Like the empowerment of that switch, which is a way to do what you did externally inside of a job uh, is amazing. And typically what happens, unless the boss is a crazy narcissist, but typically the boss becomes very, starts having a lot of trust for somebody who's not scared to speak to them like a client rather than like a, like an authority figure. And so That's such a good
0: reframing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen it just totally trans that little switch. I've seen totally transform, uh, people's careers. I'd love to hear a little bit more around, um,
0: your courses. I think, you have a bunch of different things and um, you have this view framework of vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, and wonder. Yeah, um, wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and
0: you, you also have, I think, decision-making course. The, the, I'd love to just share a little bit more because I, I think people will be interested to go a little deeper around like how did you create those? How do you, how do you think about transformation?
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have, we have like a little free four hour thing that you can do just at like a micro dose, if you will, of, of the course. And then we have the kind of the most, the, the most foundational one is a uh, connection course, which is where view and it's, and then we have the decision-making course and we have master class. I think that the, the thing of that, all the courses have in common, I know what all the courses have in common are, That there's the emotional, the intellectual, and the nervous system all being addressed in those courses, and we also made them incredible. Like this is not a course where you study or learn or in that way. It's all experimental. It's all like so. Our our completion rates are crazy. It's like ninety seven percent. I think on average completion rate. So it's very compelling. It's it's entertaining because you're like doing it. You're not thinking about it you're 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 in in the mix with it it's like a dance class rather than a a, like a dance lecture and so so that's another thing that's about the courses the the first one's a taster the second one's in communication which is the connection course it's also like how to have difficult conversations and how to have conflict well Uh, decision making is all about the emotional process of decision making and which is the entire process of decision-making whether <laughs> like neurologically speaking, it all happens in the emotional center of the brain. And so we're really just using logic to try to figure out what the emotional uh, response will be. And so that that is, and it's all about that. That one's really intense. That one's coming up. We only do that once a year and that's intense. And um, And that happens in January. And then um uh, then the master class happens once a year that's 8 weeks and that is basically from my coaching of executives that's like this is the seven things that they wrestle with typically and we spend a week on each one of them and uh and and the podcasts are all free so you know you can go and listen to them and and feel feel if it's right for you yeah beautiful
0: uh well it was a pleasure talking today. Any Anything else you want to leave us with, Joe?
1: No, no, it feels like that's complete. Feels good.
0: Awesome. Well, appreciate the conversation today. I hope he, you continue to do what you're doing. I, I think the ideas you're sharing and the way you're sharing them are incredibly powerful and uh, have made um, my relationships better. So I really appreciate that.
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.